Welcome to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Jody. Was that some uh, analog stutter steps or echoes or what was that? Analog zippers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, well done you. Uh, what are we talking about? We're doing a MIDI primer for all of our lovely listeners who don't really know a whole lot about the history of MIDI and where it's about to go. I think today it's really easy to take MIDI for granted because sure. it's so baked into our workflow and we don't think about the world before MIDI or even thinking about what MIDI really is. Mm-hmm. Hence this episode First off the top, MIDI obviously stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. Say that 10 times fast. Exactly. That really spells out what it actually is. It's a protocol that was developed between companies in the early 80s. And it's like competing companies. They just realized that they need sort of a standard protocol to connect machines and do a lot of inspiring things. Mm -hmm. And these were companies like Roland and Yamaha. Core, Kawhi, and Sequential Circuits, which is, of course, Dave Smith here in the U.S. Primarily, like these Japanese companies, there were others that were not that gung-ho about the idea, but we'll see what happened. This launched in 83. 1983, that is. Not 1883. Yeah, and it was, I believe, at NAM that we just visited last week that did this the first time where there was a profit 600, I think, and a Roland JP6 that got connected at NAMM. And you played one and the other one made the sound. So that was the first one. But it was launched in 83. And those two that I mentioned, along with the Yamaha DX7, I believe were the first to kind of have built-in MIDI capability. I had a roommate at Berkeley that had a DX7. Yeah. <laughs> and he would connect it to an insonic sampler to make noises. Yeah. Oh, the DX7s. I've never owned one. Obviously, FM synthesis. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, if you really didn't know what you were doing, they, they were a beast to program. Oh, yeah. And kind of get, get noises out of, I suppose. When MIDI first came out, it was cables that you had to connect with. And these cables were five pin cables that looked a bit like. Mic cables. Yep. And they would transmit digital signal and other information. Primarily, note on and off messages, the pitch that was being played, and the velocity at which it should have been played from whatever your sound source is. Yeah. So in other words, how hard you hit the key on the keyboard, Mm -hmm. where that key is placed, and telling the source, like, okay, play the note now, stop playing it now. Right. And it's a one-way thing. It's not like digital cables today. It's like the basic MIDI cable sent information, ones and zeros, one way upstream. That's how we connect the thing. So you had a MIDI in and a MIDI out, sometimes a MIDI through on the back of your keyboard as well, mm-hmm. depending on how you wanted them to talk to each other. And while you see still in your DAWs and everything today, we have up to 16 MIDI channels. Each one of these sends the information that we just spoke about, as well as something we call CC messages. Mm-hmm. And that stands for continuous controllers. Most of us are familiar with that. They can have a value of zero up to 127. Yes. So it's not 
whole lot of resolution there. We'll get to that later. That's the basics of MIDI. When I say like these CC messages, what comes to mind for you, Jody? What are you thinking of? For CC messages? Yeah. My first foray into that was with an expression pedal. Mm, Okay. Based on where the expression pedal was located, it would send out a number of either zero all the way through to 127, depending on where that pedal was. And that would give you the information to send off to your device to know that do this with this information. Right. The thing I was thinking about initially there is asking the question, was like, the, the most common things that we see when we're dealing with keyboard stuff, you're talking about a little bit more just with your guitar rig, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was thinking about there's 127 of these as well, right? But right. The, the most common ones that we see a lot is one and seven, where one is generally programmed to the mod wheel and that right. in turn controls like whatever it's mapped to in the synth, it's like vibrato or filter cutoff or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. And the value of CC parameter seven is generally volume. Right how hard you kind of triggering something. These are also assignable, right? So that's what we do a lot of times in our DAW when we're trying to control whatever it is that we're doing. We don't generally have to think about this a whole lot, but but that's the underpinning of, of what's kind of going on. Right. There was also something called general MIDI. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? GM mapping. Yeah. And that, without getting too far into the uber nerdy situation. It determined how patch numbers and their sound should be mapped so that MIDI files could play over different devices, i.e. drums were generally always mapped to MIDI channel 10. Everything else was kind of left to whatever device number you wanted to be on whatever channel. Yeah, there were certain sort of like parameters that it could go. So you could swap a general MIDI file and have it play so that I'm getting these numbers wrong because I'm just pulling them out of my head. The one I really know for sure is, is channel 10. But there would be, so it could be like, oh, acoustic guitar is number one or whatever. Mm-hmm. That way when you exchanged just a MIDI file and you play it back on a different synth, it would kind of sound the same or have the intended playback. Right. I think today with general MIDI, with the mapping there is the most common one that it's still adhered to is a lot of times with like drum synths and stuff. Right. Or drum so, pads. Yeah. Where a kick is generally always on C1, snares on D1, and then you have on F sharp, G sharp, and A sharp one, we have the varying hi-hats, right? Mm-hmm. And in so, between those is the toms, and sometimes there's a second type of snare trigger, which is either D sharp one or E1, and then you've got symbols and ride symbols that also get triggered in there in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Now, not everybody adheres to this. No. Like, for example, I'm a superior drummer user, tune track. Because of the depth of the instrument, Mm -hmm. there are certain things that are just laid out across the entire range of the keyboard. Generally, you're going to have like kick on C1, snare on D1, and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. And we take that for granted again, right? Right. I actually have a kind of a neurotic and funny coincidence with this because I still, in my DAW today, mm-hmm. I route my drum bus going to bus number 10. <laughs> There's absolutely no reason for that, but that's, hey, 
that's my burden to bear. So my, my drum bus is always 10. And that's from just always on a keyboard. I used to have, well, that was that was the drums that triggered well, on, on channel number 10. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about if you were starting out with MIDI back in the day, what a MIDI setup would look like and how that would be compared today, although you could still run the studio like this. You want to describe that for us a little bit, Jody? Well, the first thing you have is your MIDI controller, and that could be a straight-up MIDI keyboard or an actual MIDI controller. Initially, these were keyboards. And right, an actual and An actual synth electronic sound. synth sound or something of that nature that played sounds on its own. It would generally have between two and three MIDI inputs and outputs or throughputs on the back. Some had more. The minimum you'd get away with is one. I don't think there were too many that were made that way. However, you would run from this keyboard into a MIDI interface, which would connect to your computer or connect your controller or your keyboards to other controllers and keyboards using those ins and outs or throughputs. And you could daisy chain them and have quite a few, <laughs> up yeah, to 16 per through, channel. Right. So yeah. yeah, it was pretty crazy and you could do some pretty nutty things. If you had a computer setup, you could connect it to your computer using a MIDI interface. And they made them in varying ins and outs, much like they do audio interfaces today. You yeah. get them with two in, two out, one in, four out, eight in, eight out. They made a variety of different MIDI interfaces, which most people today probably have no clue as to what they are because everything can be done over USB at this point. Yeah. With all those older systems as well, as like, like you're describing there, so you generally have one master controller, right? And that right. would often be your main keyboard. But say that you wanted to trigger something else, start messaging that would trigger your, your drum machine or whatever happened to be, right? Mm -hmm. Then you would go out from your keyboard, MIDI out, to the MIDI in on the next piece in the chain. You might go through on that one to a third piece and so on, right? Also, like you're describing, like the MIDI interfaces, like if you had larger studios, it might be very ineffective and cumbersome to control all of these things, right. you would just have a giant MIDI interface where you just go in and out through there and control it, almost like a patch bay, but like you said, just like an audio interface today. Right. And I'm sure guys still do that, that still have a lot of their hardware synths and things. A lot of times today we, we don't think about it because it's like, no, I'm just triggering soft synth in my, in my DAW right. and I don't have to worry about that. Well, the other thing to also note about a MIDI setup is that MIDI itself does not transfer audio. That's very important to understand. And the reason for that is, is that there are people that will sometimes complain on message boards saying, hey, I'm triggering something from my DAW, but it's not recording in my DAW. <laughs> and, yeah. And then you have to ask, well, are you connecting the audio outputs of your device that you are triggering back to the inputs of your recording interface? That would yeah. be in a recording setup. In a live setup, obviously, you have your controller triggering whatever other pieces of gear through MIDI that also have to either be mic'd up or connected to amps or what have you. The MIDI itself does not transfer the audio. It's the gear that you're plugging into the MIDI network that does all of the audio creation. Yeah, 
That is a common misconception. Because like you said, you see it a lot and you hear it a lot. Why am I not getting sound? I hear it when I'm playing with my headphones. Yeah, but it's a different routing. It's audio and MIDI is just telling your piece, hey, play this note this loud and for this long. Mm -hmm. right? That's all it does. So it doesn't do the audio like you said. Once we can sort of wrap our heads around that, a lot of the mystery goes away, I think. Or so, well, it's connected via MIDI or whatever. Yeah, that that's has nothing to do with the sound. Right? <laughs> right. People that have hardware synths and that sort of part of their world, they can understand that. I think it's when people are new to the concept mm -hmm. of recording and they just have their one hardware synth. And it's like, yeah, I'm triggering everything, but it's not recording. And it's unfortunate, but, but that's a big thing to just kind of understand, I think, a, a common misconception. In today's world now, there are a plethora of various MIDI controllers that you can get that will only have a USB connection, which means it's going to connect directly to your computer. And often when you're doing that, you're triggering your sounds within your DAW, which keeps it simple. There's no ridiculous audio routing that you need to do in that regard. Yeah, because that's all taken care for you, right, in your DAW. You just got to make sure that how you're going in, that you're actually triggering on the right channel. Because sometimes if we have things that we want to layer or whatever, you might have to set up different MIDI channels to kind of mm -hmm. receive from different units and stuff. I have a good friend who is a composer, and his studio is crazy when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> Because he has controllers everywhere and he has iPads set up and everything. I would get a headache trying to wire all that kind of stuff going on. But if you have multiple controllers, they need to be set up in a certain way, obviously. If you have, like me, for example, these days, I just have one controller and it's going in. Actually, I'm still using a MIDI interface because the USB out on this one is shit. It's unreliable. So <laughs> I'm actually unfortunate. Still, it is very unfortunate, which is why when I'm using it, I'm, I'm constantly like, oh, I've got to update this. What the hell? I'm still using a piece of gear that I know you're going to mention later. Mm -hmm. How easy can it get? USB in and out, boom, everything's wired and taking care of it for you. And a lot of the time, the DAW will take care of it for you just by saying, here, when I hit this, I want that to happen. That yeah. used to be something you had to sit down and figure out for yourself and make it wired, so to speak, inside the DAW to make that happen. Now mm -hmm. everything is pretty much a hit this button, do this kind of thing, and then the DAW remembers it, and it keeps it a lot more simple. When you're dealing with a lot of external sounds or a lot of external hardware sense, it becomes that world of having to connect everything and going from interface to the various controllers or various sound sources, you may still be using MIDI cables, the five pin DIN setup. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that, but a little bit of knowledge goes a long way. If we don't have the basics down, that becomes a head scratcher real quick. Mm -hmm. However, before MIDI, I had to deal with just like CV values and like modular setups and things. And if you want to talk real headache and not being necessarily reliable, thankfully I never worked in that world. Me but, too. Uh, yeah. You know, speaking about working in the world, what was your first forays into a MIDI setup? The Atari 1040 ST. And I was running Logic Notator. Old school, baby. Very old school. So that had a built-in MIDI connection to it. 
It had the MIDI in and the MIDI out. It was one in, one out from the computer directly. And the way that I was using it was to run SMPTE timecode off of a Tascam. Yeah, onto, well, I would record SMPTE timecode to a track on the Tascam 4 track. And then I would use Wait, that Wait, that's empty on the four track? Yeah. You'd record the audio of it. No, the, I, the I get that, but, but I didn't— that they I, make. But I thought that would—wasn't until, like, the A-track or the Tascam A-track when that started. I could be wrong. Obviously, no, I did gear, it on so a Tascam 4-track because all you're doing is recording the audio out of the thing that's creating the SMPTE timecode to run timecode onto a track on the four-track. It wasn't like it was creating it itself. I had to record the time code. Thus, I would then take that time code for the length of the tune. I would figure out, here's my start value of the time code. Here's my end value. Here's my song. <laughs> and I would run the time code back to the computer, and it would allow me to trigger the drums. That's what I primarily used it for at the time was for drums, drum yeah. programming. Although there was a little bit where I was using some of the internal Roland sounds of the JV35. And I also had the JV35 expansion pack. The interesting thing is, is that all those sounds and MIDI connections that I had from back in the day that are saved into Logic files, I can now open in Logic. And thanks to Rolling Cloud, I have access to all those sounds and all of their values have stayed exactly the same. So I can use exactly the same setup in a sense to play it virtually now inside a virtual instrument instead of running it through the actual hardware synth, which I no longer have in my possession. Hmm. After that Atari 1040 ST setup that I had, I got into the Macintosh world when Macintosh went color. Instead of having the built-in interface at that point, I had the eMagic MT4 as my ding, MIDI ding, interface. Ding. And I had that for a very, very, very long time, up until a couple of years ago. And probably I still have it. I just don't have it in my setup anymore as it's not needed. And when I had that system, I also was controlling my guitar rig setup with MIDI stuff. And I originally started with a Rolls MIDI Wizard MP1288 pedal, or the 1288 from Rolls, to run patch switches. At that time, I had the ADA MP1 and an Alesis Quadroverb. Not long I after that. I think everybody had a Quadroverb. <laughs> yeah, they probably I used did. to have two, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and then shortly after that, I moved from the ADA MP1 and the Alesis to a Triaxis and the Insonic DP2. And I still mm -hmm. have those actually. Yeah. I used that with the Rolls MIDI Wizard to do patch switching. The MIDI Wizard also had the ability to have real-time expression pedals in it. And I used that right. to change volume values and distortion values on the tri-axis with the real-time expression pedal. Nice. What yeah, I started you? with the same, I started the same way with the 1040 ST, the Atari I could be wrong, but I want to say that that was the first computer that had MIDI built into it. Might be. Because I know it was very much sort of like marketed towards musicians, right? And why mm -hmm. so many of us had it, because it had that capability. I was triggering sounds off my Roland D70. Mm. Interestingly with that, it only had six MIDI channels. 
it had one through five and then 10 for the drums. <laughs> it, it, I don't know why that limitation, but that's what Memory it was. probably. System chips yeah. at the time were very limited. Probably, yeah. I was running Cubase on the Atari, and that was doing all the sequencing for triggering sounds from the D70. Uh-huh. So that's where all my programming took place. The two outs then were dumped onto, I had the task demo, was it 488? I think it was like an A-track, uh-huh. noisy little bugger, but it was taped. So I did everything onto there, and then of course, did all the guitars and stuff after that and all the the madness that that took from bouncing tracks and things. That was my basic MIDI setup. And I remember being really impressed and really gung-ho about that because I would do synth bass and keyboards and whatever needed and then drums. Now, of course, I had to balance that reasonably well in the sequencer so that when I dumped it onto two track, there was no bringing down the keyboard, right? Mm. That's what it was. Later on, obviously, I went into the the Mac world as well. I'm laughing here because I'm looking at just to my right, and I can see a little blinking MT4 still (laughs) sitting there that is still pulling duties, and it's working fine. Oh, it was a fantastic piece of gear. It was a tiny little box. Was it one in, four out? I think it is. Two in, four out. Two in, four out. There you go. But then I also obviously had my, my guitar egg when I was doing a lot of live work. I never used expression pedals and things, but I did have a piece called the Rocktron Patchmate, mm-hmm. and that was sort of like a working man's Bradshaw rig where right. it had all the loops in the back. With a little bit of ingenuity, I would write patches for that and trigger everything, and obviously I had the foot controller that was just triggering patch changes, going to different channels. It was a really, really cool system until you start having cable problems and things and it it becomes a freaking nightmare. So after a few years of using that, I started scaling back down. But anyway, MIDI was part of that and just switching the patches. It it was awesome. You could do so much stuff with it. Well, speaking of ingenuity, with the Tri-Axis and Ensonic DP2 setup that I had, I also had a GrooveTubes dual 75 power amp. I had it modified because you could switch settings on it if you had more than one tube set up on it. Because you could Mm. set each side. It had an A and a B. You could set both sides to having the same tubes or you could have them with different tubes on A and different tubes on B. The setup had a hardware loop switch that required a foot pedal to do it. It couldn't do it via MIDI. But with the tri-axis, the tri-axis had triggering loops. So I could cable from the tri-axis with a quarter-inch cable to the dual 75 to be able to switch the A and the B on and off. What I got GrooveTubes to do, and I believe I'm the only one that has this modification on the dual 75 power amp, it can switch A on, B on, or both on. So at that point, is it level changes or is it different tubes or different stages? Well, the idea of the the two sides was that you could turn one on or one off, but you could not turn both of them, I don't think. Whatever it is, I had it modified by GrooveTubes and they allowed it so that I could actually do things left-right. And it was pretty darn cool. 
with huh. the way I was able to set it up. And it required the tri-axis to take the MIDI information on the patch change and then send that information to the dual 75 power amp via just a hardware cable to be able to make that switch so that I didn't have to have a separate foot channel and be tap dancing constantly <laughs> to get right. it to switch whatever setting I wanted it to have. Huh. Yeah. Nowadays, no, things are so much easier. It is. It is. And the reason yeah, why no, I, I think... say that is, is I created a new MIDI pedal. It works via USB. It has a computer screen inside of it. It can do all kinds of crazy things. It has a much more advanced brain head, so to speak, in it. And I use it to run a main stage rig that could do everything that my hardware rig could do but it does it all digitally and it can do things that the hardware rig could never do without an immense amount of pre-planning. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the key word there. I think the planning when you're running these setups, because you had to make sure that I'm sending the right message on the right channel to the right device. To the correct, <laughs> to, yeah. To the right piece of gear. And today we're just thinking about, okay, am I sending enough CC messages to the expression on my symphonic library, whatever, right? Right. That's the origins of MIDI. And of course, there is the inherent limitation of zero to 127. You could hear zipper noise. You could potentially do that. But when you have like fader resolutions where it's controllers these days, right, control surfaces and stuff, it does have a certain limitation. But MIDI 2.0 on the horizon here. We spoke to people at NAM about this as well and what that promises to change. That will be a gigantic leap forward oh, yeah. again because this is, again, try, trying to get all the companies to buy into a protocol and have sort of like a standardized thing. Well, the where, resolution goes well beyond 128 steps. Yeah, it goes up to, I think, like 2 billion. Now. It's pretty giant. <laughs> So, yeah, and just to see what that can do and having pieces talking to each other, possibility, I think, of less programming on the user part. Mm -hmm. They're just going to see what it is. That step and what that will do will be really interesting, I think. And hopefully we can get somebody on the podcast too to talk about that that knows way more about it than I certainly do. But it, it looks really interesting. And with that, we'll move on to our variety finds. Chris, what have you got this week? Whenever Heaviosity comes out with something, I have to choose that. So <laughs> this is one of those weeks. They have a new plugin called Vast, which is essentially convolution reverb. Mm. But it is geared, from what I understand, a little bit more toward effects and sound design and things. It can just be a regular straight up reverb box like we we think about when we think of IRs, or at least I do. There's a demo of it. I'm playing with it and I'm going to see what I think. For this week, that has to be my Friday find. So vast by heaviosity. Mm. And what have you got for us, Jody? In the name of MIDI, I am going with the Native Instruments Control S88 Mark III. Ooh. It is the update to the current controller that I have, which is the S88 Mark II. And the Mark II is pretty awesome. So I imagine the S88 Mark III is going to be even more so because it is MIDI 2.0 capable. Very nice. See, it's starting to come out there. We're starting to see. And as we learned at NAM, or at least I learned at NAM 
logic is already ready for 2.0. Mm-hmm. I did not know that, but that is good to know in exciting times. Yes, sir. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You will need to be on our email list in order to be eligible for future giveaways, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this incredible podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word MIDI, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Have an awesome day, everybody. Thanks for listening.